0: And uh, yeah, um, I am going to concentrate on Ukraine. I'm not going to deal with everything, so I'm not going to try to cover every aspect of uh, what's happened and uh, what to expect. But uh, simply to start with what's being called the end of phase one. This is the Russian uh, description of their military operation, I have to say my own take on it, uh, others might well have a different um, view, but my own take on phase one, if I understand it correctly, and I'm not claiming to have any unique insight, but uh, we are told, and uh, I I take it as uh, accurate, that the aim was to carry out regime change in kiev uh, to drive down uh, from the north to reach uh, the suburbs of the capital city and then to surround it uh, and then uh, either according to one account drop in paratroopers or whatever but either way you decapitate uh, the existing regime that's my reading uh, of phase one And what we heard in Istanbul was the magnanimous um, offer or actually pledge uh, to withdraw troops from the Kiev region and also the other uh, northern front and to concentrate on what was described as the main goal, which is um, Donbass and uh, my understanding would be, and the south. Okay. There are those, I don't go with it myself, that says that this whole Kiev uh, front was a a brilliant ruse on behalf of the Russian army, that they never intended regime change, uh, that this armoured column uh, was designed to divert troops from the east uh, to the centre of the country. um, And uh, that succeeded brilliantly. I I just don't buy that myself. Uh, I think that if you take phase one, uh, the Russian army has been defeated. Now, that doesn't mean the war's over. That doesn't mean that Russia's been defeated. I'm confining uh, my remarks to phase one. And my understanding of denazification isn't uh, dealing with the right sector, um, the National Corps, or Salvador, uh, or even the Azov uh, Brigade. My version of, um, you know, my understanding of denazification uh, is actually the nature of the regime itself. So with that understood, and I, as I said, I could readily be wrong, And maybe, as I say, this was a a brilliant uh, feint uh, by the Russian uh, army and uh, Putin, um, but maybe not. And if it wasn't, then it's been uh, defeated. Okay. so why? Um, My own reading, again, would be twofold. Uh, First of all, because I think that the intelligence was wrong. Uh, The intelligence seems to have been that the Ukrainian population, both Russian-Ukrainian and Ukrainian-Ukrainians, would either welcome in the Russian army or treat it in a pretty indifferent fashion. Um, That seems to have been the reading. In other words, uh, relatively few troops uh, could be used to depose Uh, the uh, president, uh, Zelensky. Secondly, um, I think that there's been a failure um, when it comes to logistics, what could be called a failure in detail. And we've got plenty of evidence of that. Okay, I readily admit that I'm mainly getting my information um, from the Ukrainian stroke, NATO stroke, British stroke, U.S. side uh, of it. And I'm well aware that in the middle of uh, a war, the first victim uh, is truth. So, uh, again, what I'm saying could easily be wrong, but the evidence seems to show a determined resistance. And it also shows, I think, um, that there's been a revolution in warfare. Um, In other words, if we take, for example, and it's not the only example, but if we take the example of the tank, uh, which was the sort of um, supreme um, battle weapon, ground battle weapon, um, say from the 1930s, uh, all the way through World War ii into the fifties, into the sixties, into the seventies, it's not that that is no longer relevant and it's uh, um, antiquated, uh, but it's lost its supremacy. I think that we can say that. And what you've now got is weapons uh, that neutralise uh, the tank. And so you, you know, I, I've read the description. Uh, that the tank has gone from the main instrument of shock and awe um, on the battlefield uh, to being a target. Um, And that's sort of my uh, reading of what's going on. Now, we're not dealing with, of course, tank formation versus tank formation. Uh, What we're dealing with is uh, tanks coming along a road, Uh, What we're dealing with is tanks entering a village, entering a town uh, and then coming under attack uh, from these um, javelin uh, missile launchers. And I don't know how you would say them, but NLAWs, New Lightweight Anti-Tank Weapons. And my main reading on this is uh, from Saab the original Swedish manufacturer of the new lightweight anti-tank weapon. I'll call them uh, N-laws for short, for purposes of um, um, short, you know, shorting it. Uh, But yeah, what I read is that these weapons, I think they they retail for about uh, $100,000, a lot of money for you and me, but compared with a tank, Uh, greatly cheaper. Uh, they're also, you've you've seen them easy to carry, uh, easy to lock on to the target. That just takes five seconds. It takes courage. It's not just, you know, you or me that just go out there and hey, take a pot of the tank. You know, it's putting yourself at risk, but you put yourself at risk. You take aim on this, you lock into your target, you launch it off, and bang. Uh, you know, nine times out of 10. There's a kill. Also, of course, what's going on. And again, I've read less about that uh, and maybe because they're not being deployed in the numbers that I thought they would be. But again, um, I I, I just don't know, but there's maybe also the fact of drones Um, and drones can, you know, hang about in the sky for hour after hour. Someone, you know, 100 miles away, 200 miles away, a 1,000 miles away, uh, can um, locate a tank and either target the drones, uh, munitions, a missile uh, onto that tank, or can uh, target some other missile that's being launched um, onto it with great accuracy. And as I understand it from my limited reading, the tanks that the Russian army has deployed Are quite old. Uh, They are T 62s, which go back to Soviet times, T 72s, which go back to Soviet times, and T 80s, which I think are late 1980s model um, Soviet tanks. Um, And what is noticeable about them, and I've just seen the videos of it, that these Javelin and Enlore. Uh, Missiles seem to go along the ground and then they do that and then they do that. I don't know if you can see my hand. They do that. In other words, they've been pre programmed to hit the tank not frontally or on the side where they've got thick armor. They're programmed to hit it on the top, on the turret where the armor is thin and they penetrate uh, the armor, kill uh, the crew, or set the tank um, on fire. Uh, And that seems to be very successful. I would guess, of course, uh, that the drones are doing exactly uh, the same sort of thing. Now, as I understand it, there are more up-to-date Russian tanks uh, that might uh, be um, different, might have uh, strengthened armor uh, on top. Either way, I think that what we're seeing um, acted out uh, in Ukraine is the revolution in warfare uh, that's not only overthrown the tank as, you know, the crucial weapon of land warfare, uh, but also, again, in at least my assessment, has dramatically shifted warfare um, that was established really in World War II with the supremacy, not of the battleship, uh, but the the submarine uh, and, crucially, the aircraft carrier. Uh, That that technology now isn't redundant, uh, but it's no longer uh, decisive uh, in the way that it was. So as I understand it, if you take the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, I emphasize marine, um, they've actually got rid of their last tank formation. Now, they've got rid of it, one, because, of course, there's the army in the United States, which has got plenty of tanks, but they've got rid of their Uh, uh, tank uh, units because they're envisaging fighting China, uh, but as one arm uh, of the US uh, armed forces. So again, this isn't uh, that tanks are now antiquated, irrelevant. It's just that these these new technologies are playing an ever more important role. And I would guess uh, that countering uh, these new technologies will be the next phase uh, in warfare. Either way, uh, again, I'm going on Western figures. So the figure I used in my article was hundreds of Russian tanks have been knocked out. The figures I've been reading uh, are in the order of 600, 700. Now I take those figures to be the same sort of figures as you know the, the Brits were boasting about in the Battle of Britain and the Germans were boasting about in the Battle of Britain. Um, the, the, these are claimed uh, kills by the other side. And quite frankly, if you're a soldier and you launched off your missile uh, and then you scuttled off, um, you w- might well report back to your captain. Uh, I got that tank and you might just knocked, might just have knocked the wheel off or something along those lines and they get out and they repair it. And after 10 minutes or so, the, the tank is uh, back on the road. I don't know. Uh, all I would say, though, is that the evidence seems to show tank after tank after tank after tank after tank of armoured car after armoured car after armoured car uh, knocked out. Also, what we are told, and again, this is uh, from the our side, so to speak, you know, uh, NATO side, is that the Russian army has been short of food, short of ammunition um, um, and therefore, you know, soldiers are out there scavenging. There's plenty of reports uh, of that for food, um, you know, that they run out of fuel. Again, that shouldn't be surprised at because um, what we've had is a tank column. And what tanks need in order to operate is uh, soft skin vehicles following them up with fuel and ammunition. And if the road is blocked, um, well, that isn't getting through. Um So uh, that shouldn't surprise us. And again, just to point out that that we're talking about phase one, uh, what Western military experts are saying is having withdrawn, uh, this will um, allow the Russian army uh, to regroup, uh, to overcome the logistical problems that they've experienced, and fight phase two. What is phase two? It seems pretty clear. They're saying that they will take the whole of the Donbass. I think, you know, again, I thought they could at least surround Kiev. So maybe uh, I'll I'll be wrong again. But uh, from my angle, I think they will get their act together, and I would have, I would envisage seeing them either on schedule or sometime soon uh, take the whole of Donbass. So at the moment, I'm just being very rough and ready. They've got about half the Donbass. Uh, I would envisage them uh, taking uh, the rest. Um, Also, um, you know, in terms of establishing facts on the ground, I would envisage them taking Mariupol. I would envisage some sort of land bridge uh, between the Donbass and Russia and um, um, Crimea. Uh, Whether they go further uh, to the west and uh, try to take uh, Odessa, I don't know. Um, You know, you could um, cut uh, Ukraine off uh, from um, the Black Sea. Uh, That would matter in terms of its grain exports, um, whatever. I don't know. Uh, My guess for what it's worth um, is that we will end up with some sort of armistice. I don't know when, but some sort of armistice uh, that sees a divided Ukraine um i can't see um ukraine agreeing in other words to the division um, of ukraine i don't see NATO agreeing to the division of ukraine but yeah, i can envisage them de facto agreeing to the division of ukraine now the key question then is what happens in moscow again i shrug my shoulders and go well i, I don't know but we know um and it 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 was telling us what we knew, wasn't it? When Biden in Warsaw said that um, this guy, Putin, for God's sake, he can't be allowed to stay in power. Um, This wasn't diplomatic language and the Germans didn't like it and the French didn't like it. The Turks didn't like it. And some in Washington, D.C. didn't like it. But that's the American plan, isn't it? Uh, This isn't telling us something new. Uh, that the whole purpose of uh, 2014, the whole purpose of overthrowing uh, two uh, uh, governments in Kiev is precisely the bigger picture. And the bigger picture um, is either about regime change or uh, dividing the Russian Federation surrounding China, American hegemony over the world island. Um, and I don't think it's just Brzezinski um I, I think that's the plan now whether they could do it or not that's an entirely different question and um you know if, if russian plans can go you know awry i think it's perfectly reasonable uh to say that state department plans can also uh go awry all we need to do is think at least in terms of my lifetime to the heroic triumph of the united states over poor little vietnam and the wonderful sight of uh Vietnamese tanks storming in uh, to Saigon, into the American embassy and seeing the Americans scuttle out on their helicopters, let alone Afghanistan. So, hey, if you can't do it in um, Vietnam and you couldn't do it in Afghanistan, the idea that Russia is going to be easy, uh, think again. But I don't think that what we're dealing with here is, you know, NATO troops versus Russian troops. I think that what the plan is, uh, you know, it's there in the CIA playbook. It's called a colored revolution. It's called regime change from above as well as uh, pressure uh, from below. It's called uh, contacts with oligarchs. It's uh, contacts with generals, with members of the FSB. Look, I don't know what the CIA has got there. Uh, but this isn't going to involve some, um, you know, Americans, uh, you know, landing paratroops. Uh, this is the sort of regime change that we've seen in other uh, uh, countries in Eastern Europe um, and indeed uh, the sort of regime change we saw uh, with Yeltsin in 1991. And I suspect myself that, you know, the consequences in terms of uh, uh, Russia, um, if they were successful Far from it bringing them prosperity that uh, Navalny and uh, the Americans will promise, it will bring new disasters, uh, new terrible, terrible uh, suffering. Uh, But I think that is uh, the plan. Um, Okay. Um, I want to move on now. So that's just really my assessment. That's, That's where my head is at, at the present time. So, uh, yes, it's possible uh, that Putin might be able to sell, um, you know, um, the whole of the Donbass victory over uh, the Ukrainian fascists, um, the securing of a a land bridge with um, Crimea, maybe uh, taking the whole of the Black Sea coast. He might do that. He might therefore be able to sell that as a stunning victory. Um, and it wouldn't, you know, I, I, I'm really trying to say that uh, at the moment um, to have been defeated in, in one particular uh, field and with one particular aim doesn't mean uh, therefore total defeat. Uh, you can have uh, a defeat on one of your aims and yet a victory in another uh, of your aims anyway. Um, What I want to do is just take a step sideways now and just deal with um, our friends, our dear, dear friends in the Socialist Workers' Party, who don't have an awful line uh, when it comes to Ukraine. They say they don't support um, the Russian invasion. I will use that word. Um, They do say... Uh, as opposed to stop the war coalition led by their former comrade, uh, John Rees, down with NATO, Uh, not just withdrawal of NATO back to um, uh, the end of the Cold War, but uh, NATO should be abolished. I support that. And they do say, which again, I would argue um, is the case, that what we see in Ukraine isn't big guy versus the little guy what we see is an example of the big guy using the little guy to take on a slightly bigger little guy if you see the point in other words what we see in ukraine is a proxy war by nato Um, that is my understanding of what we're seeing uh, from february okay so what i wanted to deal with is the argument And the style of argument uh, with the SWP against those in the labor movement who are taking a pro-NATO position or taking a position of NATO is a side issue uh, in this one. And it's simply about little plucky Ukraine uh, taking on the great Russian bear, um, which is somehow fixated on um, conquering Um, or re-establishing the Russian Empire or re-establishing the Soviet Union in a Putinite uh, form. In other words, what I'm dealing with is organizations such as the Alliance for Workers' Liberty in Britain. Uh, We're dealing with organizations such as the Labour Representation Committee in Britain, Labour Briefing in Britain, which is a different organization, Uh, We're dealing with the Mandelites, uh, followers of Ernest Mandel um, in Britain, now organized under the banner of anti-capitalist resistance. They used to be called socialist resistance, as we used to say. This is an organization that always was distinguished by resisting socialism. Couldn't stand on socialism. And also individuals um, such as um, Paul Mason, who used to be, a leading member of an organization called Workers' Power and a guy called Chris Ford, who's the convener of the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign, who's got a very murky past um, in terms of links with the CIA and who knows who else when it comes to Eastern Europe and, and Ukraine in particular. And what I'm dealing with is the exchanges between the SWP's leader, Alex Kalinikos, and uh, his opponents in that camp. Uh, And I was flabbergasted when I read the exchange uh, between um, Alex Kalinikos and um, uh, Paul Mason. Uh, And how did Alex begin um, his reply, in Socialist Worker? It was along the lines of, I haven't got the text in front of me, but it was along the lines of, dear Paul, I very much admire you and your writings in particular on fascism. Now, Paul Mason is someone who, in terms of his latest book on fascism, actually advocates a popular front with the bourgeoisie. And uh, he says that what uh, we face is a struggle between democracy on the one side, represented by the United States, Britain, France, Germany, and then Autocrats and dictators such as Russia and China, and would be uh, fascists. uh, uh, And we've got to unite with the liberal bourgeoisie uh, against these autocrats and against fascism. Now, if we just think back to the tradition of the left on this question, uh, I think uh, some of Trotsky's best writings, and he was a fantastic writer, some of his best writings were on fascism. And Some of his best writings on fascism uh, are also his writings on official communism collapsing into popular frontism, collapsing into the sort of politics that the the right-wing Mensheviks had uh, in 1917 uh, and before, i.e. in alliance with the liberal bourgeoisie. That's where official communism was in the mid-1930s. And Trotsky furiously denounced this. And he said, this is the equivalent Of the official communist movement doing a 1914, i.e., going over to your own bourgeoisie. Of course, they weren't. It wasn't as simple as that, uh, because they were they were following orders from Moscow. But what he said is there's a logic there, and you know what begins by following Moscow's orders ends up in just plain old nationalism of the sort uh, that we saw in 1914. Well, Trotsky didn't begin his letter. You know, like, you know, open letter to Stalin. Dear Joe, you know that we've got a history of being comrades together. And I did admire your last book um, on, you know, that you on fascism and the fact you put Georgie Dimitrov up at the Seventh Congress of Comintern um, as some sort of puppet. And I really do admire your anti-fascist spirit. Uh, I'm flabbergasted, in other words. Uh, that uh, Alex Kalinikos can sort of chummy chummy uh, to Paul Mason, who not only is advocating a popular front, but is also taking the side of his own bourgeoisie in a proxy war, right? His own bourgeoisie, he's championing NATO, he's championing the British government, he's championing Keir Starmer and the official Labour opposition. He's a social imperialist. What makes him a social imperialist is he he justifies uh, support for imperialism using socialist arguments. So I've heard in the AWL, for example, the Alliance for Workers' Liberty and their paper Solidarity, that they justify their pro-NATO stance uh, by quoting Marx from the 19th century and his opposition to czarism, something that has been thoroughly examined on the left and thoroughly gone over and being shown to be historically specific. I've also seen them uh, quoting Spain and how this is the equivalent of Spain. Lynn Truss, the foreign secretary, has done exactly the same. It's taking uh, the left and it's taking its causes and turning them on their head. And then, of course, uh, well, I'm not blaming Lynn Truss, uh, but it, it, it's ignoring the real history of Spain. Uh, and the fact that what the left did in Spain, and I'm talking um, all the left when it comes down to it, bar very few, I'm mean, including the anarchists in this, ended up in an alliance with, well, a phantom bourgeoisie. That was um, Trotsky's view, and actually blocking um, a social revolution in the name of anti fascism, and therefore actually uh, disempowering our side. Uh, that's the long and the short of it. Okay, so that's one example. Well, if that wasn't bad enough, we now have another uh, example of it in um, Socialist Worker. And that's uh, um, the exchange between Alex and uh, Gilbert Acher, if I get his name right, the um, Lebanese uh, Mandelite. And he begins in exactly the same way Dear Gilbert, this is what he says. I've got the words written down Dear Gilbert. As you say, as friends and comrades, we've avoided abuse and misrepresentation. Dear Alex, this is from the other side. We have, you and I, quite a long tradition of comradely debate, etc., etc., etc. Now, I have to you know, say that to me, what Alex Kalinikos uh, reeks of is centrism. And the reason I'm using this word is because it reminds me precisely of the problem that Lenin uh, found uh, with such people as Kortsky and Martov And Trotsky, it has to be said, Um, that what these comrades wanted in the centre to do is denounce the war. That's true. But what they wanted to do is maintain friendly relations with the right or as friendly as possible relations with the right as they could. And so you had a split, for example, in the Zimmerwald uh, a conference between Lenin, <laughs> a handful of um, others on the left and the main bloc, uh, which simply wanted to denounce the war in the name of peace, uh, but also, um, op- you know, op- keep the door open. Uh, uh, to those in the pro imperialist camp. And that is something Lenin wanted to close off. So we have to ask the question is what is going on with the SWP? And my own uh, assessment is not only does it um, reek of centrism of the Kortsky Martov uh, sort, it also reeks of popular frontism in its own right. In other words, the SWP uh, can come out with a relatively principled position. I I think all its stuff about this being an inter imperialist war uh, is a nonsense for reasons that I've um, discussed before. I just cannot, um, you know, myself, um, you know, look at Russia and say, well, that's an equivalent of Britain, France, let alone the United States. I mean, just take the example that's well known in Britain. Of uh, Roman Abramovich, um, there he is. He's a multi-billionaire. Um, how did he get his money? Uh, robbery, robbery in Russia. What's he done with his money? I'm sure he's got tons of money locked up in investments, you know, investment trusts and stuff like that. But what else has he got? Apparently, he's got five super yachts. Five? What the hell do you need five super yachts for, Roman? I don't know. But millions and millions and millions of pounds locked up in London properties. And, of course, what is it, 1, 1. 1.5 billion uh, in Chelsea Football Club? Or is that the debt that he's going to write off? I don't know. But the point would be that that, is, that sort of description is characteristic of these so-called oligarchs, oligarchs who aren't rulers uh, in Russia but made their money in Russia. They take some of their money out and they use it as money it's not capital this is not the export of capital this is not self-expanding they're not engaged in production they're not engaged you know in uh, organizing the workforce uh if they are anywhere it's indirect and it's through others it's you know banking it's insurance it's stocks and shares anyway my main point would be uh that um if you take Uh, the swp that aside uh, what we've got is an organization uh, that uh, basically wants to get on with the trade union bureaucracy wants the trade union bureaucracy and others to its right uh, to share its platforms uh, and to view it as a nice organization uh, that uh, they can have civilized debate with i'm reminded uh, of the complaint against Rosa Luxemburg, let's forget Lenin, <laughs> against Rosa Luxemburg in Germany uh, from members of the Social Democratic Party uh, who were supporting the war. And they said that, look, the problem with Rosa Luxemburg is she's rude. She will use rude words about her, about us. We don't mind civilized debate. Uh, we can tolerate that. But the reason we've got to shut Rosa Luxemburg up is she's rude about us. She's actually... Questioning our socialist credentials. Well, exactly. That is what Alex Kalinikos doesn't do with these social imperialists. These people are class traitors. there's There are more traitors than Kortsky, the renegade Kortsky, but they don't want to use words like that. They want to use Kortsky like words because they are Kortskyite. And it, this goes back, I believe um sort of to the origins of the socialist workers party and their great success that they all remember and that's the anti-nazi league well every war in britain i can tell comrades who are from abroad but if you're in america it's the same thing in russia it's the same thing every war is a rerun of world war ii and that's how socialist worker Uh, play when they became the swp through the anti-nazi league that's how it played uh, opposition to fascism all the fascists in britain became nazis or some were but some aren't and fascism isn't simply german nationalism it can be it can come with not just the cover it can be genuinely real uh, in terms of the stars and stripes with the french tricolor And with the Union Jack, without any association uh, with Adolf Hitler worshipping, it it can be British fascism, but they wanted to fight it as German. And they also did a World War Two by opening up the anti-Nazi League to members of the Tory party. So you had it. It was backed by Tory MPs, um, let alone trade union um, officials and all the rest of it. And that's the great success. That they, that they look back to, but also after the Delta crisis, the crisis with Conway Delta, the SWP is desperate uh, for these sort of figures to share its uh, stand up to racism uh, platforms like, well, go around Britain and find me someone um, who's um, pro-racist now. Well, I'm sure you can find someone, uh, but they are very rare. So it, 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 it's a campaign. Uh, you know, um, that's precisely like saying, well, who's against Nazis in Britain? Well, I asked the question, who's further Nazis uh, in Britain? Uh, this is horrible, horrible uh, politics. So underneath the surface of taking a principal position, a recognition that this is a proxy war, uh, you've got the SWP wanting to have, quote unquote, civilized, friendly relations with traitors. That does not apply to its attitude to those on the left. Those on the left are dismissed as precisely rude, uh, people who are unpleasant, uh, people who actually don't want uh, uh, a friendly relationship uh, with um, uh, traitors. We can be in the same organization as traitors, like we're in the Labour Party, uh, but we are going to use honest language uh, about these people. So. Politics, from our point of view, isn't a parlor game. It's not a dispute between two professors. And even my understanding of academia is, when professors fall out, they use very uh, robust language. I'm in favour of robust language. I'm against uh, politeness uh, when politeness uh, isn't needed, and when politeness actually obscures the real political differences on the left, and the real political differences are profound um, on on the left, but not only uh, between us and the social imperialists, but also between us and centrists who want unity uh, with the social imperialists, who regard the social imperialists as wayward friends. Okay. Okay, this is um, starting to get to the end. I just wanted to follow up my remarks on the cost of living crisis in Britain. Uh, We had the spring statement from the Chancellor uh, the other week, was basically offering uh, no help as inflation uh, spirals uh, in Britain. So on April the first, that's April Fool's Day, um, they upped um, energy prices um, by. 50 plus percent 50 plus and there's meant to be new increases of that order coming in october Um, so we face domestic energy bills spiraling Uh, we also face petrol uh, bills spiraling uh, because the um, the middle eastern producers haven't come out with uh, we're going to turn the taps on um, in spite of the requests from biden and uh, johnson Um, So petrol prices on the forecourt are at a record high and the chancellor cut duty by five pence. Well, just ask any motorist, I'm not motorist myself, you know what that means to them. And they'll tell you In the midst of prices just going up and up and up, it means absolutely nothing to us. All goods rely either on electricity to get here or petrol and uh, those prices are going up so food prices are spiking we also have at the same time national insurance rates are going up we also have council tax uh, going up and those on fixed income i.e pensioners uh, disabled uh, uh, people people on universal credit that they've frozen frozen for year after year okay with inflation at two percent It takes a time for that really to be undermined. But if inflation, as is expected, is to go beyond 5% to 6% to 7% to 8%, that quickly, quickly halves uh, in what it can buy you. And there are people in Britain already before this energy increase, you know, genuinely in the midst of this winter, which wasn't a severe winter in Britain, it was an incredibly mild. Uh, winter who have the choice between putting the heating on and keeping warm and feeding the kids and of course they choose to feed the kids they sit there in coats in one room well if that's where they are now where are they going to be next winter um they're going to have not the choice of what do we do it's either one or the other the the kids start to go hungry um that's that's the reality for some people um and of course as i've argued before poverty is a process it's not something that oh because prices go up 5% you just consume five it's when the washing machine goes it's when the cooker goes it's when something you know that you you have to have you have to have to replace it that's when you plunge into poverty and of course what we've got now is people turning uh to credit cards well paying it off every month that's no that's no problem but when you don't Then you into gain into crippling levels of uh, interest rates and that's where people will turn and that will screw people Uh, and the government knows it the government knows it so it's promising to do something but do it down the line will they actually fulfill their promise who knows what the left is expecting and i understand this people of a certain generation looking at you know looking at the mirror who remember what was called the winter of discontent in Britain. That's what they're looking to. They're looking to an explosion of rank and file anger. What happened in 1978, 79, is there was a labor government that in cahoots with the trade union bureaucracy, this is when the trade union movement in Britain with a smaller workforce had 12 million members. We now have something like 6 million members with a workforce that has doubled, right? when there was a rank and file trade union rebellion against the deal that the Labour government had agreed with the trade union bureaucracy. And this was called the social contract. And it went social contract, phase one, phase two, phase three. And basically what it says is we're going to limit pay demands. Um, and that's what the trade union bureaucracy signed up for. And it meant that workers started to see real falls in their living standards and they rebelled and they rebelled against the final uh, phase which i think from my memory stan you will remember this was called the social concordat that was blown high sky and we had a situation of where people weren't being buried of where bins weren't being emptied and there was a wave of strikes and what that ended up with of course is the Tories coming in, not slapping, um, you know, anti-Trade Union laws straight away, but nonetheless lining up for a strategic struggle with the trade union movement that was actually taken to a culmination in 84-85 and the defeat, strategic defeat of the working class in the form of the NUM. Now, of course, the left is not wishing for that, but they are looking uh, to another winter of discontent. I'm very skeptical. Uh, I think the trade union movement in its present form has been massively bureaucratized. It's massively weaker. It's half the size with twice as many people in the workforce. So I think there will be trade union resistance. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. But the idea that the rank and file are in a position of where they can cause an explosion, and this was in a period of when picket line meant don't cross and lorry drivers and other workers would carry out secondary action. They wouldn't cross a picket line. All of that broke down, 84, 85. And I don't think workers nowadays actually know what a picket line should be. You don't cross. That is something that we need to re-win. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think that we're going to see a repeat of 78, 79, but I can imagine some sort of explosion now, whether that takes the form of riots that would tend to be young people, I don't know Whether it takes the form of political action standing alternative candidates, I don't know, it might be that the trade union movement is rebuilt in the way it was in Britain, uh, back in the late 19th century, when we saw the birth of the general workers unions, as opposed to skilled workers unions. that's possible. But to do that, workers will need to be organized in a way that they can challenge successfully the trade union bureaucracy, which is not interested in provoking a wave of strikes. Quite the opposite. What it's got a material interest is settling a dispute or actually negotiating a settlement that could easily see workers' pay and conditions pushed downwards. And that was the reality. Surprised me in the PO dispute 800 workers sacked without any notice and what we had in terms of at least the radio stations that i was listening to is rmt people coming on and saying we could have negotiated we could have negotiated lower wages longer terms out at sea just like on irish ferries so instead of actually going to irish ferries and saying we want to raise the level what they were talking about is why didn't these owners from Dubai agree to us having negotiations that could see worse pay, longer hours uh, on p and uh, uh, ferries. So, yes, there will be pressure uh, uh, for the trade union bureaucracy uh, to fight, uh, but there's also a material interest in the trade union bureaucracy uh, to settle. On the other hand, the pressure that will come from below will be immense. Far bigger uh, than 78, 79. But of course, without the organization, without that history of massive industrial struggles and great victories uh, uh, in the 1970s and the late 1960s, two miners' strikes, you know, numerous strikes uh, in print, um, you name it. Uh, the British workers went on strike to the point where the Times editorialised in the midst of coup talk uh, that Britain had become ungovernable uh, because of trade union power, crucially at the level of sh- the shop stewards, which is what the Labour Party successfully, in cahoots with the trade union bureaucracy, successfully uh, got rid of in terms of uh, not, tra- not uh, shop stewards, but shop steward power. Okay. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just a, a footnote to that. Um, yes. So in the United States, in New York, we have uh, the successful vote to trade, you know, unionize Amazon. Great. Um, but does that mean that we're going to see a wave of strikes uh, by Amazon workers? Uh, I, I'm skeptical because I think the trade union bosses will simply be ne- negotiating slightly, ter- you know, slightly changed terms and conditions. But for Amazon workers in Britain, well, they're facing poverty in a genuine sense i.e uh, they will not be able to reproduce themselves culturally um, at the accepted uh, uh, level okay just a couple of other things looking at the times so we're coming up to 10 to or try to finish uh, after an hour what have we got uh, le pen going up the opinion polls in france my own betting i've got lots of things wrong i keep pointing it out if you want to go to the betting shop and say well you know uh, jack conrad is predicting a macron victory and because i got uh, trump wrong because i got brexit wrong you on a show when i think it's still going to be macron <laughs> so uh, i think that uh, le pen will come second so she'll be in the on the runoff uh, Melenchon is there. But I would say this with Melenchon, from my reading of things, he's running on a left nationalist platform. And so he says France out of NATO, not the end of NATO, but France out of NATO. So a very gaullist sort of position as opposed to an internationalist position. Nonetheless, at the moment, in terms of opinion polls, he's third. Le Pen is second. Le Pen is going up. But my prediction is um, Macron. Uh, will win okay Falklands 40 years ago Thatcher extremely unpopular Argentinian troops go into the Falklands take over pictures of um, British looking people with cups of tea uh, a bit like you and me and there's some you know you know um, Argentinian soldiers and the Argentinian flag And there's Thatcher saying, we're going to do it. And she had to strong arm Reagan, wasn't it, to give them the satellite information and not supply um, Argentine. What was going on in Argentina? They were the generals. These generals had seen, overseen the slaughter of the left. Slaughter. People chucked out of helicopters. People driven into exile. People murdered and their kids Uh, adopted um, into um, families uh, of the top military. And so they go in and they go in under the name of anti-imperialism. They go in under the name of um, the Malvinas are Argentinas. And what to me was tragic is that sections of the Argentinian left, including exiles in Cuba, were queuing up uh, outside the Argentinian embassy uh, to volunteer to fight the Brits. What was our position in Britain? Well, we were, I think we were the Leninist. I think we were uh, uh, a quarterly journal. Our position was for defeat. And what the left still start, can't seem to get their heads around is you can be for defeat of your own side But that doesn't mean calling victory for the other side. It's a bit like Lenin in World War One, right? So you can be for the defeat of Tsarism because that will speed up revolution. It does not mean that you're calling for the victory, right, of Germany, the Kaiser. And so from our point of view, against some on the left, which said victory Will spur revolution. Victory will spur revolution. No defeat spurs revolution. So their idea was, if Argent, if the Argentinians win, this will spur on revolution in Argentina. Now we said defeat will spur on revolution. The generals were overthrown. Uh, their regime collapsed. You had, um, you know, elections. Uh, they lost that war. In Britain, victory meant. Right. Uh, uh, An unpopular Thatcher suddenly enjoying sky high popularity and romping home um, in a general election and placing her brilliantly from her point of view to take on what she called, remember, the enemy within. Having done down the enemy without the Argentines, uh, she turned to the enemy within. That was Scargill. That was the miners. That was you. That was me. And she won not only in um, Argentina, but also won uh, uh, in the class struggle domestically. And to me, um, it's quite possible uh, to be for the defeat of your own side, both uh, uh, in Britain uh, and in Argentina. And the left, I think, uh, would have been better placed in Argentina if they hadn't adopted a nationalist uh, position um you know what i mean you can talk about oil in those islands but in in 1983 those islands were about sheep they were irrelevant their only relevance was as a was it re-provisioning place for uh, either the royal navy or whaling ships Uh, this was 19 this is a leftover from the 19th century um so they, they had no economic uh, importance. They were, they were important politically for the generals in Argentina, and they were important politically uh, for Thatcher. And they should have had that. That should have been the view of the left, in my opinion. Okay. A couple of last things. COVID in Britain is at record levels. No, people aren't dying at a record level. They're not going to hospital. In a record level, we have record high infection because of this latest variant. There's a new variant going around. We don't know enough about it, Uh, but this is infecting people right, left and center. I was looking at the FT this weekend. Whole offices are closing, not because, um, you know, some lockdown, but simply so many people are off sick. And of course, what's happening now with restrictions being lifted and free testing uh, going, is that people are under some obligation. I can't know what it's called in office work, but under a sort of moral obligation to come into work in spite of feeling ill. So they've got some flu type symptoms and they're meant to come into the office. Well, that's just dumb. They come into the office and infect the rest of the workers. And either some of these workers end up in hospital or because, you know, because they're feeling so lousy, cannot go to work. And it's just going through the entire population. Uh, uh this is irrational so you know in terms of classic marxism what's our solution you overproduce you have too many beds uh, in hospitals you produce too much stuff not in any capitalist way but you just have that that extra in case of emergencies you have m- more staff than you need you should not be working overtime you should not be working at nights you know that's the marxist program But in Britain, the government's got rid of these restrictions. Um, Less and less people are wearing masks. So very few people now wear masks, at least I see on the London uh, overground. Some people are still wearing masks in shops, but it's getting less and less. And yet COVID is getting more and more and more. Uh, Obviously there's gonna be a limit. Uh, Nonetheless, um, I'm not in favor of another lockdown, no, no. But nonetheless, free testing, Urging people not to go to work if they're infected because they know they're infected, that's a good idea and give them proper benefit uh, for this period. Don't bloody put them on universal credit, which is starvation, right? And lastly, on COVID, which is my f- sort of penultimate point, I don't think that the um, zero tolerance of COVID in China can stand up any further. You know, closing down shanghai i don't think works not with um if they get omicron it, it it's too infectious and unless you cut yourself off from the rest of the world that's it so first round lockdown yes 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 a thousand times yes that's the right thing to do what a pity they didn't lock down earlier we all know what happened first time round uh, but if they had have done you'd have shut down Um, on uh, COVID, and it would have gone the same way as SARS, whatever the hell it was called, uh, that they successfully eliminated. They didn't do that, so we got COVID at the same level of flu. Uh, But you need a regime that can cope with this, that can give people injections for it, but at the same time does not force people uh, to go to work to spread this damned uh, disease to um, kids and uh, to fellow workers and all the rest of it. Last point, Uh, how much time have I got myself? Two minutes. Um, This is the purge, the witch hunt in the Labour Party uh, under the Starmer regime, Sir Keir, former member of uh, the Pabloite Socialist Alternatives uh, faction. Uh, What we have is the revival of the prescribed list that we all thought had gone the way of the Cold War, but has been revived. And initially, we had the naming of three organizations, Labour Against the Witch Hunt. We were amongst the leaders of that. We were very proud uh, to be prescribed. Uh, We had an organization led by Chris Williamson, um, former Labour MP, only one with bloody backbone. Pity about where he's going at the moment, but a good guy. His organization was prescribed And then the comrades from Socialist Appeal, um, from IMT, International Marxist Tendency, were prescribed. And what we've had um, just over the last few days or so is the announcement of three more organizations to join them. And that's the Labour Left Alliance. Why the Labour Left Alliance? Because you're associated with Labour Against the Witch Hunt. And what's Labour Against the Witch Hunt? Labour Against the Witch Hunt distinguished itself by saying that this witch hunt against so-called anti-Semitism is bogus. It's a lie. It's a big lie that really what we are, we are anti-Zionist. And that's the truth. And if you want to expel people for being anti-Zionist, that's what you should expel them for. Don't pretend that we are anti-Semites. We are not. Uh, no one in law uh, was preaching that particular uh, um. Um, socialism um, of fools so they've added uh, to that list um, an organization called lean which is a new organization which is the merger of um, two um, previously prescribed organizations i forgot what the hell it's called so stan will tell me all about this when it comes to his chairing Either way, that's been prescribed, but it's irrelevant because these comrades are basically committed to life outside the Labour Party. Um, so they've got rid of the LLA. They've got rid of this organisation called Lean. Is it Lean, Stan? No, it's Labour Socialist Network or something like that. L. Anyway, whatever the hell it's called. So they got rid of that. But they've also got, and this is the point I wanted to get to, Stan. Sorry about that. They've also got rid of an organisation which I've already mentioned called the Alliance for Workers' Liberty. And they've been um, prescribed uh, because they're a group like um, Socialist Appeal, uh, which is an interest organization. The irony uh, is already there. Conway's will appreciate it already uh, because this is an organization that's not only pro-NATO, just like Keir Starmer, pro-arming Ukraine, just like Keir Starmer, Anti-Russian imperialism, hmm. just like Kir Starmer, this is also an organisation that urged on Starmer and the previous witch hunt of uh, so-called anti-Semites, that is anti-Zionists, because it uh, um, was of the view uh, um, that yeah, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, and that is something they've been banging on about that the right have taken up, um, and now the irony is uh, that they go down to the witch hunt as well so it's like uh, the situation in the united states under mccarthyism where mccarthyites themselves start falling victim uh, to the mccarthy witch hunt so it's like you know the salem witch trials or charges of uh, witchery or sorcery uh, in europe of where the accusers themselves are accused so you know equivalent to the uh, Inquisition, the Inquisitor, inquisitors themselves go down to it, like under Stalin, you know, members of the KGB, UPG, or whatever the hell it is, you know, Yagoda, uh, Beria, <laughs> these people are going down to the witch hunt, which they participated. We don't welcome that. Of course we don't. Uh, but you have to say that there is a horrible irony there. And we did tell them. A, that there is a logic uh, to the, this witch hunt. And these witch hunters will not look at the nuances uh, of the left. They view these people as on the left. Therefore, they have prescribed them. Whether that leads to more and more expulsions, I don't know. All I'd say, again, this is said in the spirit of irony and humor, comrades. So, anyone who wants to report it, as Jack Conrad said, this is meant to be a joke. I think that we should be in favor of the prescribing of um, socialist alternatives and anyone who's ever supported it ever <laughs> in its history. Just Joke. Yeah. Joke. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's it. Thanks, Dan. Okay. Thanks, uh, John.